Turn with me now in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look briefly at Matthew chapter 5. This is the start of the what is called the Sermon on the Mount. There's a, a bit of debate among the scholars as to who exactly is on the mountain. One gospel makes it sound like Jesus is on the mountain preaching down to the people at the bottom. The other gospel makes it sound like Jesus is at the bottom preaching to the crowd that's on the mountain. Either way, there's a mountain and Jesus is preaching. So we're going to look at that, Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to look at verses 1 through 16 with you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Do not, nor do they, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. When Jesus begins to teach his disciples here on the Sermon on the Mount, he begins, as Paul often does, with a statement of fact. These are indicatives. One of the tragedies about the Sermon of the Mount is how often we'll come to these Beatitudes and we'll try to apply them as if they were some law. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Oh, I need to be more pure, poor in spirit. How do I impoverish my spirit so that I can live up to this? That's not actually what Jesus says. He doesn't command us to go out and be poor in spirit. He reminds us those who enjoy the poverty of spirit, you know, humility, right? Those who are humble, they get the kingdom of heaven. Notice also that the Beatitudes end with this refrain, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By beginning and ending with this refrain, Jesus calls our attention to the rich blessings that God gives to those who are like him, those who love him and who seek to live according to his will. 
In other words, Jesus is handing us this wisdom by which we know how to live in the world. Know God and his will for you. In this, we are conformed to his image and blessed with his love. With this in mind, turn back with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Our sermon this morning is from Proverbs chapter 3. And I'll be reading verses 27 through 35. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 through 35. Solomon has so far introduced his son to the basic foundation of wisdom. As if he were building a house of wisdom for his son. He has said to him, this is what wisdom is. Knowing the character and will of God. It's knowing God and doing what he wants. That's wisdom. He has said further about how we get wisdom. We get wisdom by reading his word and knowing his works. By being students of the word and works of God, we become familiar with the will and character of God. And in so doing, we are able to do what he wants. This is wisdom. But then thirdly, Solomon has said to his son, what wisdom will do to him. If by being a student of the word and works of God, we become knowers of God and doers of his will, then we are conformed or transformed into the image of God, made in the likeness of God, renewed in righteousness and holiness, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. With that foundation in mind, Solomon now begins to teach his son the eight essential pillars of wisdom. The first one is up today. Generosity. Listen as Solomon speaks. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it to you, when you have it with you. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Do not, oppress, do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Amen and amen. Several springs ago, I was sent out into the garden with a spade to create holes in the ground for the new plants that had been bought. As I sunk the edge of the blade down into the ground and turned up the soil I immediately began to see unexpected and alien objects in the dirt. Bits of rubber, bits of metal, bits of glass. I continued to dig and continued to sift through the soil, pulling out these unwanted pieces and wondering to myself, well, really grumbling to myself, who is it that uses the backyard garden as a trash dump? And as I began to pull together all of these little scraps and pieces, I began to see the pattern. They were car parts. 
And then I realized this wasn't a trash dump. It was buried treasure. They are the souvenirs and mementos and legacies of my predecessor. A young pastor who occupied the parsonage 35 to 40 years ago. And in addition to being a devoted preacher of the gospel, he was a talented amateur auto mechanic. And here were the leftovers of his legacy of generosity. He used to take the cars of neighbors on Antrim Street and friends within the congregation and repair them and fix them right there in the parsonage. One concern I have about sharing this illustration with you is that you get the wrong impression about pastors. The only thing I can do with your car is drive it and break it. I cannot fix it. But this talented amateur auto mechanic, the previous pastor here, Bill Cornell, left behind these unintended scraps of his ministry, this legacy of his love for this community and this congregation. Such is the nature of generosity. Such is the nature of kindness, that wherever it inhabits for any length of time, there are always scraps and remnants that remain in the soil of that area. If we wish, my friends, to see different fruit and different plants growing in this community than the current levels of hostility and angst and selfishness, then we must sow the soil with love, with grace, with kindness. We must leave behind this legacy, this scrap of love and grace and kindness. By sowing into the soil of our hearts such compassion for one another, such mutual service and generosity, we transform ourselves in the world. This is what Solomon is teaching his son. This is the first essential quality of wisdom. It is generous. It is generous. To put it in the words that we will see emerge from the text as we go through, Solomon tells his son this gospel truth. You have a home in heaven. Therefore, live generously on earth. Because you have a safe and secure home in heaven, I beg you as Solomon does, live generously here on earth. Notice, my friends, as we go into the text itself, that Solomon begins this transition from laying the foundation of wisdom. What is wisdom? Where do I get it? What will it do to me when I achieve it? To now laying out these qualities or essential properties of wisdom by telling his son to not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Now, of course, in the Western experience of charity, in the American experience of generosity, we fixate immediately on that phrase, those to whom it is due. Ah, the deserving poor. Of course, that's not what Solomon actually means. For in parallel to this phrase, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, he actually gives in verse 28, do not say to your neighbor. The one to whom your charity and goodness is due is your neighbor. Now, if you want to ask me the question, who is my neighbor? Many of you already know the answer to that. Suffice it to say that if we go to Jesus' parable about who is my neighbor, that is the Good Samaritan, we will learn exactly what Solomon is here teaching his son. 
those who are near you and have needs. This is the X and Y axis of charity and generosity. They need to be near you and they need to have needs. That's it. If they are near and if they are needy, do not withhold good from them. He says, likewise, do not withhold good when it is in the power of your hand to do it. He says, secondly, in verse 28, do not delay in giving it when you have it with you. Notice again that parallel. Not only should we not keep good from anyone who is nearby and in need, but we should not delay in giving good to any who are nearby and in need. Solomon says to his son, live as abundantly generous as you can. Give as thoroughly and as swiftly as you can. Do not withhold good from any neighbor, anyone who is near and in need. And do not withhold it, but also do not delay in giving it. Let your generosity be swift and thorough. This is what Solomon says to his son. This is, of course, not only something that we set up as an ethical standard for us. That we should imagine it in our own lives. My friends, do you have anyone near you who is in need? Solomon says, do not withhold good. If you have the power to give it, give it. But also remember that this is the wonderful standard to which our Savior has lived. Do you remember those incredible stories? They are among my most difficult stories to deal with as a pastor. Because I am so far from Jesus in this department, it's embarrassing. Jesus spends all day preaching and teaching, not a 30-40 minute sermon, all day. Hours of just pouring out his thoughts and feelings to the people, enlightening them and teaching them and training them. And when he gets done, they all say, we're hungry. And Jesus says, well, let me feed you. They are near and they are needy. And so it's within the power of his hand to care for them. He does. He is swift and he is immediate. He gives rest to all who are near and who are needy. This, my friends, is an extraordinary expectation that we should be like Jesus in being swift with our generosity. But Solomon doesn't merely imagine that this generosity to which he summons his son is only in goods as in concrete gifts. Not only could we walk the streets of Cambridge and find many people around us in great need with whom we have the power to extend our hand and do them some good, and we should do so without delay, But he imagines within this neighborhood that goodness spilling out into vibrant relationships and friendships which flourish. He says in verses 29 and 30, My son, do not devise evil against your neighbor. Notice the parallel. Not only should you not withhold good, but you should not devise evil. Not only should good be flowing out from those who walk in faith in Christ, but evil should not be. By devise evil, Solomon speaks of the invention of evil, the instigation of evil. We would put it in our common language, don't be a troublemaker. Don't be the one who starts fights. 
For your neighbor dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause. That is to say, inasmuch as don't be the one who starts the evil, don't be the one who causes the problem, but in like manner, don't strive with one without cause. Don't start the fight. Don't be the one who has been unharmed and yet is harming others. Solomon says to his son, don't be the one who hoards goodness and don't be the one who distributes evil. Don't invent the problem. Let those who live around you for safety's sake dwell there in the peace of your presence. Don't stir up trouble. In our little world, we don't imagine this phenomenon very much. It was, of course, far more common in the ancient world. Nevertheless, we still see it in the American experience. Have you ever heard of flight or gentrification? They are both intentional efforts within the urban American experience to get away from neighbors you don't want or to get rid of neighbors you don't want. There is this funny phenomenon that though we don't imagine that there are necessary bonds of trust between neighbors on a street because we have locks and doors and security systems and the relatively low crime rates of an American urban experience, nevertheless, the reality is there. What Solomon says to his son is true of us. Your neighbors live next to you because they need you to shovel their snow. Your neighbors live next to you because they need friendship and affection. We live in a world where devising evil and striving without cause is incredibly common and insanely hurtful. This is one of the things that bothers me most about what I see on social media. Fellow Christians, especially officers of the church, slapping out slogans that have no greater purpose than riling up the others. It drives me nuts. Talk about Jesus or be silent. Why do we strive with others without cause? Why do we seek to harm those who have not harmed us? Can we not live in this giant world loving others? Building up a neighborhood of affection and of mutual trust that is richly rewarded? Of mutual trust in which no harm comes? This is one of the joys of living on Antrim Street. I've told many of you the stories. When the snow falls and the shovels come out, so do all my neighbors. Some of you have streets like this too. This street is never as chatty and as sociable as they are right after a snowstorm. Because we're all shoveling each other's snow. Because we're all rewarding one another's trust. As we live together with this generous gift of affection and of friendship, Solomon says to his son, if you have the power of good in your hands, do not keep it there. If you have the power of good in your hands, do not delay. If there is someone near you who is in need, distribute that good. And most of all, distribute that good of affection and friendship. Live in a neighborly manner. The good which you are empowered to give more than any other good is not the dollars in your wallet, but the kindness of your heart and the affection of your friendship. 
Solomon then summarizes these two principles. Live generously, especially in your friendships with one another. But he summarizes it in verse 31 this way. Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. Solomon labels the opposite oppression. Isn't this striking? This is enlightening. The oppressor is the one who does withhold good from others, who sees the need of his neighbors and yet retains all power. The oppressor uses the power of his hand to do good, to do himself good, and no one else. Likewise, the oppressor devises evil for neighbors, taking advantage of their trust. This is the summary of what Solomon warns his son against. The one who uses all the power and goodness that he or she possesses to prey on others. To exercise privilege and prosperity in a way that harms others but prospers self. Solomon says, do not envy this guy. Do not envy this oppressor. And do not choose his ways. Instead, Solomon reminds his son in verse 32, for the perverse is an abomination to the Lord. His secret counsel is with the upright. Having laid down this ethical impulse, Solomon says to his son, live generously, especially in your relationships, with your friendships with others. Do not take advantage of people's trust. Give and give. But he says then the reason in verse 32. For God is always involved in our relationships. You do not have a single relationship, not one, of which God is ignorant or uninvolved. He is attentive to all the relationships of life. You know that giant macro economy to which you are subject and you don't even know it? The laws of supply and demand and the ships on the ocean and all the things coming and glowing over the global world. And there is some poor person in some foreign country who sewed this thing together. And there's somebody who sailed a ship to bring it here. And I have an economic relationship with all these people. And I have no control or power or association with it at all. But God does. But God is in that relationship. God is attentive to that relationship. God, likewise, abhors the perverse oppressor. Solomon warns his son, live generously, live gently, be a peacemaker. Why? Because the Lord hates the self-seeking soul. The Lord hates the oppressor. You know what? Hate is a strong word. Let's go with loathe. Actually, that's a little stronger, isn't it? We'll just use the word in the text. They're an abomination to the Lord. There's no softness to this, is there? The Lord loathes those who live for themselves and have no time to care for others. The Lord hates those who oppress the poor and the widow and the needy and the orphan, who withhold good from those who are near and needy, who devise evil for those who are near and trusting, who abandon friendship and fellowship in order to seek their own ends. The Lord hates these perverse oppressors. 
By contrast, his secret counsel is with the upright. By secret counsel, Solomon seems to mean an intimate fellowship. That is, he enters into a special and unique friendship. By secret, it means that it is not available widely to all and everyone. This is a mystery that is revealed only to those who live or enter into this relationship with God. There is a secret counsel, a special knowledge. Now, as I thought about how to preach this, the first thing that I freaked out about, and I think Tom's freaking out about it too, is this sounds like Gnosticism. This doesn't sound very good at all. Well, hold on to that thought, okay? We'll we'll resolve that. It's not Gnosticism. This secret counsel is publicly available. I'll give you a hint. There's 66 books on it. And it's a secret counsel that is only received and known by those who in faith walk upright before the Lord. That is, those who stand upright, distributing good and not evil. Those who live in this manner, a generous life, enjoy the secret counsel of the Lord. Solomon then goes on to explain to his son the nature of this secret counsel and this abomination. The Lord does not merely have a hot heart within him with which he hates those who are self-seeking and oppressive. The perverse oppressor is not only hated by the Lord, he is in fact cursed by the Lord. Verse 33. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. Verse 34. He scorns the scornful. The Lord not only hates the self-seeking oppressor, this perverse person, but he curses him with his scorn. The one who scorns his fellow humans finds himself scorned by God himself. This is not a new idea with Solomon. He didn't invent it. He draws it out of the law of Moses. For Moses himself says that the Lord says, those who hear the cry of the poor and turn a deaf ear find that God will not listen to their prayers. There is a spirit of generosity which God looks for in those who are humble. He scorns the scornful, those who are careless and callous and indifferent with the needs of others will find that God is not particularly compassionate or pitiful toward them. He curses the house of the wicked. This is a stunning metaphor that we find all too often and all too familiar. Stop me if you've heard this story. There's a great entrepreneur, a great politician, a great musician, a great actor, someone who amasses to him or herself a tremendous amount of wealth, builds up this great empire, only to find that his or her children hate them and destroy their legacy. Is that familiar? I think Shakespeare wrote one or ten plays about that. It is familiar. Solomon says it is everywhere evident. The curse of the Lord is upon the house of the wicked. That is, those who live for their own selfish ambition, perversely oppressing everyone around them, soon find that their house fractures and scatters. You cannot build a cohesive, enduring life out of self-seeking. My friends, this is a very important message for a lot of our neighbors who have great need. They cannot build a cohesive, enduring life out of their self-identification. That selfishness and self-seeking will only result in a splintered, shattered existence. 
By contrast, though, God offers us another way. Solomon tells his son that the secret counsel is with the upright, namely his blessing. He blesses the home of the just. He blesses the one who has been vindicated in his faith in God by living generously. Who has said, I will give all that I have the power to give, as immediately as I can give it. Indeed, this blessing is named in verse 34. He gives grace to the humble. This is rephrased by the Apostle Peter. The Lord resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Lord scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. You see, this life of generosity, this propensity to give away all that is in your power to give, to give as immediately and as thoroughly as one can give, to devise no evil, to reward another's trust, is rooted in one's own humility, to think less of oneself and more of others. In the words of Paul, to look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. To have this mind. You guys have memorized this, right? You guys remember four and a half years ago, I told you to memorize Philippians chapter 2. It wasn't four and a half, it was like four years, something like that. You guys weren't here. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Those who have the mind of Christ. Who look not only to their own interests, but to the interests of others. And this then draws us to the heart and climax of the text. If we are humble, amassing not to ourselves, but distributing freely to others, doing them no harm, but bringing to them much good, we find that we are forming ourselves into the image and likeness of Christ who came among us in order to be our neighbors. This is the extraordinary expression of this vision of life that Solomon has. You see, we are called to live near other people in order that we might know their needs, in order that we might care for those needs. Isn't this the most extraordinary illumination to human relationships? Friends, why were you given kids? It was not to reward your sense of self-worth. It was so you could care for their needs. Children, why were you given parents? It's not only the biological inevitability. It is because you can care for their needs. Why are we humans created in relationship, brought forth into community? Why is it that everywhere humans go, they fashion a society and civilization instead of merrily ignoring each other? Because, my friends, God has made us like him to give. This is the divine character revealed to us in the nature of humanity. That we are like him in his image. To care for one another, love one another. The wisdom of generosity is that it reveals to us something about God. Who he is and what he wants from us. He is a generous giver. He is a cheerful giver. And so he calls us to give. What is even more richly encouraging to us? We are called to the neighbors we have to trust his providence and his sovereignty, 
to care for those relations who are nearest to us first. We meet their needs and then work our way out according to the Lord's abundant provision. Who is the Lord near? All who call. Isn't it wonderful that he gives you a handful or a half dozen or more of close relationships for which you are responsible? But that's it. All that we can manage and no more. Yet he has come into the world in our flesh in order to take upon his shoulders the needs of all his neighbors. That we might walk with him, live with him. It is Jesus who fulfills this text. It is Jesus who is the son of Solomon, who lived in the most superlatively generous way. And it is only in Jesus that you can fulfill this text. Let me prove it to you. Verse 35. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Solomon draws his line of logic down to its natural conclusion. That those perverse oppressors who withhold good from those who are nearby and needy, those perverse oppressors who impose evil on those who are trusting them, ruin their house with the curses and scorns of God, leaving behind a legacy of shame. Leaving behind a corruption of all their works. Leaving behind a ruin of all their plans. Their empires come to nothing. Their ambitions pass and fade without glory. It is a stunning thing. The Olympics have spent so much money trying to give away glory. And in a few weeks, none of us will know any of their names or remember any of their deeds. It is such a fleeting and expensive glory. Yet Solomon offers something else to the wise. The wise are those who do not withhold good from those who are near and needy. The wise do not devise evil for those who are trusting them. No, the wise are humble before the Lord, seeking his blessing and then sharing it as broadly and as immediately as possible. They inherit glory. There are two important concepts here. One, the glory that they inherit is the opposite of the shame of fools. That is to say, they inherit a fulfillment of their desire. They inherit the achievement to which they aim. Dear friends, if you aim to live in service to others in the name of Christ, you are the one person who is going to achieve your life's ambition. Because you can live in service to Christ and in service to one another. If you aim to give away all that you have and to lay at last in your bed at the edge of your life with all the glory of this earth that you have acquired, spent wisely and well on the needs of others, well then that's one ambition you can have. Have you seen those old cheesy movies where someone is given a million dollars and said you'll get 30 million if you can give it all away to those who are poor and needy within 30 days? There's a bunch of them made in the 80s. It's an extraordinary vision of the life of a Christian. You were entrusted with untold time, hours, years of your life, with one ambition that you would spend them on others. You were entrusted with strength and with energy, with wisdom and with education, with love and with affection. 
That you should from your very soul and your very being live in the service of others' needs. And you say, it is far too much to me. And I say to you, have you seen your Savior? This is what he has done for us. And so it brings us to the verb, the wise shall inherit glory. Why does Solomon choose the word inherit? Why didn't Solomon say that the wise, that is those who live generously in all their ways, will earn glory? Because Solomon is prefiguring the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is going to pick up on Proverbs chapter 3. And he's going to expand on all those blessings that are the secret counsel which God gives to those who are humble. Do you remember his blessing? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Why do we live generously giving away all the earthly glory, all the earthly good? Because that's what shows we are children of the living God. That's what shows we have a home in heaven and this one can pass and fade. Beloved, this is the rich teaching of Solomon. Wisdom for our souls that we should know our God, the giver of every good thing. And that we should know our God's will for our life. That we should give good generously and freely to those who are around us. Beloved, this is what it is to be the children of God. That Jesus should make known to us his adoption through the gift of his love that we might love freely and give to others. Dear saints, you have a home in heaven. You who are trusting Jesus are the adopted children of God and have the security of his fatherly affection in his heavenly home. There's nothing on this earth you need to cling to. If it is in the power of your hand to give, give. Dear friends, you have a home in heaven. So live generously here on earth. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the beautiful grace of our Savior Jesus Christ, who left his home in heaven to be our servants here on earth, to lay down his life a ransom for our sin. We give you thanks that in his service and in his sacrifice, we have now in him a home in heaven. And pray that we, like him, would serve lovingly one another. Father, forgive us that unlike you, we constantly hoard to ourselves goodness and give out to others evil. But Father, remake us through the power of your spirit, the teaching of your word, the grace of your son, into your image and likeness. That we would live like you, giving goodness and not evil. Father, have mercy on us. That we would rejoice in your presence among us, trusting in your justice and sovereignty for us. And O oh God, empower us this week to walk in these ways to the glory of your name and to the good of our world. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.